well, great to uh, have Tim with us uh, sharing in uh, Sunday school about the Rama people and then just now about Vanuatu. Uh, I am interested in going, but more than that, uh, Tim, I'm glad that you got my $28,000 check. Uh, you're welcome. Just just let me know, and uh, I'll, I'll do what I can uh, for you in the future as well. Uh, just an announcement, two announcements. One is that on Wednesday, February 27th, so last Wednesday of this month, uh, we're going to be having a special business meeting, and at that business meeting, we're going to be discussing uh, opening up uh, the role of deacon uh, here at the church for both qualified men and women. So we've discussed some of these issues in Sunday school uh, throughout the fall, and the elders and the deacons, uh, recognizing that it's a congregational, a congregationally governed church, have decided that the church should have that uh, opportunity to vote on this particular issue. So that's going to be coming up on February 27th, uh, Wednesday at 7 o'clock. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're not able to make it, uh, there are proxy forms which basically allows you to have your vote uh, by empowering someone else to vote on your behalf at that meeting. So make sure uh, that if you can't be there, uh, you have a proxy form filled out. Also, uh, next Sunday, uh, we're going to be, Lord willing, having a baptismal service. And so if you are interested in baptism, uh, please come and talk with me, and we'll be able to uh, sort all those sorts of things out. All right. As we work through Isaiah together, uh, there are going to be times when we land in very famous chapters, and this is, morning is one of those mornings. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6. I know that uh, doubtless you've heard messages on this particular passage before. You're quite familiar with it. And yet, uh, because it is the Word of God, it's always useful for us. We can never exhaust it. And so we ask uh, God to help us, that he will allow us to understand his Word, to apply it. You find it actually in Revelation chapter 4, uh, that the angelic beings are still saying, holy, 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 day and night, they never stop saying. And so if the angelic beings in the presence of God have the attention span to praise God this way for centuries, uh, we can hear a few messages about it in our lifetime. So Isaiah 6, this is the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, 
Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as a terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Before we consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, you are uh, the God who is revealed as being holy, holy, holy. That, that is objectively who you are. And so we ask, Lord, that subjectively we will be able to respond to you as the God who is real, that we will see you, that we will know you and love you. And also in a very healthy way that we will fear you. That we will treat you with reverence and with awe for the God that you are. Lord, we, we thank you that you have filled this earth with your glory. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are still calling uh, men and women and boys and girls to know you. Uh, that you are a God who, although you are infinitely holy, still delights to remove the guilt of people and to atone for their sins. And then you give them jobs to do. And Lord, I pray that you will make us faithful, not only to worship and to adore you, uh, not only to come to you in faith for salvation, but also make us faithful workers in your kingdom. If there are messages to be taken, send us. If there is work to be accomplished, empower and equip us. Open doors and then send us through them. Lord, we know that there are people here today, this morning, who are coming from a variety of life circumstances, some of which uh, fill them with joy, some of which uh, cause them to despair, some of which uh, are pleasant, some of which are painful. Lord, you know every one of our hearts. You know the events of our week. You know the events of our morning. You are the God who knows. And you are the God who cares. And you are the God who has power. And so we look to you, Lord God, this morning, you who are three times holy, you who are transcendent, also be imminent, be close to us, draw us to yourself, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, you are doubtlessly familiar uh, with this text uh, it's a great part of our hymnody. It's a part of a lot of our worship songs. Uh, it's something which is quoted uh, frequently, even when the sermon isn't about uh, this particular text. It's often drawn in. And so there's a very real sense in which there's obviously nothing I can say, uh, which is going to be novel. There's nothing I can say which is going to be new. And that's actually quite fitting 
because when John in Revelation 4, as I previously mentioned, has a vision in heaven, he sees a throne and he sees angelic beings and they're still saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so if we were to take a crassly chronological perspective, which you ought not to do, uh, you'd say, here's John uh, and here's Isaiah and there's about eight centuries in between, and these angelic beings have not stopped saying this phrase, holy, holy, holy. And so there's something significant about this. Uh, and if you think about it, it's also relatively obvious that the angels in heaven, in God's very presence, know how to praise him. Presumably, they know the categories in which God is to be praised. And what they say is holy. Holy, holy. We don't want to misunderstand, don't misunderstand, but it has sometimes been noted that they are not flying around crying out, God is, is love, love, love. Or omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent. <laughs> Rather, it is this specific word, he is holy, holy, holy. And so that, that very vocabulary choice has to be significant for some reasons. Now, before you get to that chant, though, uh, you're told chronologically, here is the year that King Uzziah died. Now, of course, for us, unless we are familiar with the Old Testament history, you know, that's just a name. One of the things that's always important to remember is that this was living history for these people. So for us today, it would be like saying, in, in, in the year that you know, President Trump died, or in the year that you know, Prime Minister Mulroney died, these are people that you know. And so for them, when King Uzziah dies, there's a whole background that they're well aware of, which is this. King Uzziah was the greatest king politically and economically since Solomon. He was the one who developed military technology. He is the one who developed a lot of uh, agricultural infrastructure. He was an inventor. He was someone who loved the land. The borders of Israel were nice and expanded. There was relative peace and safety. There was prosperity in every way. And... He grew great in the sight of the Lord and all of the people. He was so powerful, actually, that the text, the transitional text in the history books will tell you that when he grew really powerful, he became pride. He became proud, and his pride was his downfall. Uh, he actually exceeded his grasp. He, he became too big for his own spiritual maturity. And so what happened was the king, Uzziah, went into the temple to offer incense, but incense was only to be offered by the priest. In Israel, priest and king were strictly separated, brought together in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but strictly separated into the tribe of Levi for priests, tribe of Judah for kings. Uzziah was told, do not offer incense in the temple. But he rejected the word of the priest, went in, and God cursed him with leprosy. So Uzziah stood as a, as a monument to incredible political savvy and, and expansion and a whole variety of positive things in a social in a social way. But religiously, at the end of his life, his pride led to failure and actually being cursed from God and driven, being driven out of the temple. So it's at this point, when King Uzziah dies, the one who was the great king since Solomon, but the one who was not able to go into the temple, that Isaiah has this vision. And what he sees is the one who belongs in the temple and the one who belongs on the throne. In other words, what Uzziah could never be, 
God is in a supreme and transcendent sense. He is high and exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. Just the outer edge of the hem of his garment overflows and spills out of this mighty temple building which has been constructed. This isn't just merely talking about sort of spatial relations. It's actually significant that it's the train of his robe or the hem of his robe. You'll recall when David was fleeing from Saul and Saul goes into a cave. David sneaks up behind him and with his sword just cuts off just the very hem of his garment, just a little piece. He could have killed him, but doesn't. Then afterwards, the text is something very interesting. The text says that David was conscience-stricken. Like, for what? Just, just, for, just for cutting off a little piece of cloth. That doesn't make any sense. The hem, the train of the robe, for priests and kings was specially made to give status and designated who they were. So David feels like what he's done in cutting off the train of the robe is there's a sense in which he's, he's diminished the kingly status of Saul. He's raised his hand against God's anointed. He's diminished him. He's cut off that symbol of status. And so here what you have is the train of God's robe filling the temple. In other words, his kingly status, who he really is, king and priest, all of the temple can't contain him. It can't contain his robe. It can't even contain the little hem of the robe, which gives him honor and dignity, which shows who he really is. Above God, so great and majestic, high and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple are the seraphim. Literally, uh, this word means uh, burning or fiery one. They're they're like flashes of lightning uh, on fire themselves in the presence of God. They're covering their faces. They can't look directly at the Lord. They're covering their feet. And they're flying. Calling to one another. They're reminding each other of these things. This is actually something very important, even in worship, that we need to understand. This is just off to the side. Uh, in musical worship, it's very important to understand this. We are singing to God. But we are also proclaiming God's praise to one another. That's what the angels are doing. They are calling to one another. They are reminding each other, this is who God is. Don't forget, this is who he is. Remember, he is holy, holy, holy. Now, there is a little bit of a debate about the etymology of this word. Classically, we would understand it this way. The etymology doesn't doesn't determine meaning anyway. But the idea behind the word holy is likely comes from a root word meaning to cut or to sever. Now, it works out then into a metaphorical way. So if I were to take uh, my Bible and I were to cut it down the middle, uh, I would then have two pieces. So in cutting, I've separated. So the the word begins to function as a word for separation. Now, we often think in our context, probably rightly, of holiness being connected to morality. So we talk about holiness and sanctification in growth in holy living. A subjective sort of holiness. So it's, it's about behavior. This relates well with what Paul says. You know, if you want to be holy, come out from among them, touch no unclean thing. If you're going to be cut apart or you're going to be separate, 
from a fallen, dark, evil world, how will you demonstrate that? Well, you'll demonstrate it through ethical living. So holiness gets bound up with morality and ethics in a New Testament sense. And that's, that's one proper use of the term. But the angels, the seraphim, are not flying around merely saying God is, is moral, moral, moral. Or he's ethical, ethical, ethical. What they're doing is they're flying around in the highest sense saying he is cut apart. He is separate. He is categorically other. He is utterly distinct. There is no one like him. He alone is holy, holy, holy. Now we know this in part because when you get the, uh, the tabernacle instructions, you get various accoutrements, various instruments which are holy, but they're not even animate. So they have no moral properties whatsoever, but they're holy because they're set apart from common use. This actually is one of probably the primary meanings of the word in terms of application to people and to objects. To be holy is to be reserved only for the use of God. It means that you belong in the sphere of the sacred. So the, the, the shovel that you use to scoop out the ashes of the burnt offerings in the temple uh, can never ever be used for gardening. It is reserved only for this. It is set apart. It is holy because it's reserved for God. And that's what we are to be as well. We are to be reserved for God. We belong to him. We are to be used for him. So we are separate, we are different from others. But only God is holy in the highest possible sense of literally being in a category all by himself. His holiness is is the sum total of all of his perfections. He alone is the creator. He He alone is the one who is the standard of right and wrong. Uh, he is the only one from whom goodness itself flows and by which it is defined. Uh, he is the one who gives life and breath to everything else. Uh, he is the one who creates the universe ex nihilo. He is the one who upholds the seraphim by his powerful will and word, even as they praise him and remind each other of who he is. He alone occupies this role. Everything else is derivative. Everything else is contingent. Everything else is dependent. Only God is the independent creator of all things, the source of life, life itself, life in himself. He's the being who cannot not exist. He is the independent creator. He is categorically different. There is literally no one and nothing like him. And these burning ones fly around proclaiming this day after day after day, reminding each other, there is no one like God. Not even a little bit. He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. The train of his robe can't be contained in the temple. As Solomon had said in the temple dedication, First Kings chapter 8, that he knows that this house cannot build him. Even the highest, the heavens, the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. The Israelites primarily saw the holy presence of God being in in one small, tiny, cubic room, the Holy of Holies. 
then overflowing to the temple a little bit, then into Israel a little bit more. But the glory and the holiness was contained. Here, the seraphim are crying out, reminding each other, His glory is not contained in the temple. His holiness is not contained in that little cubic room, the holy of holies. His glory is not contained in the universe. The whole earth is full of his glory. No matter where you go, Canada to Vanuatu to wherever it is that you go, there, wherever you find a square inch of ground, you find a place where the glory of the Lord is revealed if you have eyes to see. And that's the problem. The problem is having eyes to see. But the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Oh, that God would give us that vision so we could see wherever we are the revelation of his glory in the ways that he chooses to show himself. When they cry these things out, everything shakes and the temple is filled with smoke. This is a manifestation of the presence of God. You remember the tabernacle. Exodus 40, when God moves in, the Shekinah cloud of his glory, that pillar cloud which had led the children of Israel, uh, now moves into the tabernacle. It's filled with, with glory and smoke, and the priests can't even go in to serve. The exact same thing happens in the temple dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. The smoke and the cloud and the glory fill the temple. No one can go in and serve. And here there's like this earthquake, everything's shaking, and again the smoke and the fire and the cloud are there, the glory of the Lord. So this is the vision. And then you see Isaiah's response to the vision. He doesn't just join in. Well, that's a catchy song. I can pick that up. Woe to me! I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. The year that King Uzziah dies, this great king, he's not the king. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Woe to me. It is fitting and proper for the fiery ones to praise God. But it is not fitting and proper for sinful people to join in. Isaiah is struck as he listens to the praise of these burning angels. That their lips are pure, they can praise God, but as a sinner, that, that, that distinction, that separation from him and holiness makes it impossible for him to praise. Woe to me, my lips are unclean, I cannot voice the praises of a holy God. How could I even live? My eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim, you remember the, the, the seraphim is the burning one, the one who's on fire, flies over to the, to the fire, to the, to the altar where there's a fire. And he takes a fiery coal from that altar fire in his fiery hand, or he takes it with the tongs first, and he flies over to Isaiah. And this burning coal is from the altar of sacrifice, the altar of atonement. And he takes this coal, and, and Isaiah has just recognized, and this is something actually uh, psychologically uh, and existentially and subjectively important here. Isaiah has just, 
He's just been struck by the fact that his mouth is unclean. It's at his point of subjective recognition of sin where where that application of atonement is placed. That that coal touches those lips that had just voiced the fact that they were unclean. This this you picture this the, one of the highlights of Isaiah's life. One of the most poignant moments of Isaiah's life is, is almost quite literally biting a coal in the presence of God as God has provided atoning power symbolically in that fiery coal, in the fiery hand of the burning one, in the thrice holy presence of God. And the burning one says, See, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. One of the things that's interesting about this is that we don't know, none of us know, all of Isaiah's life. What sins that he committed. I don't know. But no matter no matter what, literally, no matter what his sin had been, God was going to take care of it all. And that same thing is true for us. It there there is nothing that anyone can ever do in their life which removes them from the saving power of God when he decides to provide atonement for their sin. Your guilt is taken away. Your legal guilt is satisfied. It's not a problem anymore. Well, how? Because God has paid for it. He's provided atonement. Your guilt is removed. Your sins are covered. The fact that your sins are covered is what allows your guilt to be removed. Your sins are wiped clean. I've taken care of it. This altar of atonement, and of course we know this altar of atonement symbolizing the great atonement, the, the only real atonement that ever atones is offered by Jesus Christ. And so this, this coal from this altar is symbolizing, it's pointing forward. It itself is prophetic. That one day there will be a, a sacrifice that actually atones for sin. There, there's two sort of theological terms that are sometimes used, very, very helpful. Um, that that you'll you'll like this because also I, I don't know if you guys are going to. Uh, uh, my understanding is that um, there's there's some kind of um, you know, American football game occurring later today, and uh, probably some of you are going to go and uh, have a, just a. Great time uh, watching that particular game or watching the commercials, which are probably more entertaining, or you know, doing whatever it is that you do in those sorts of uh, circumstances. Now, here's, here's what you don't know. If you go to parties, the, the fastest way to social success is to just drop casually and then explain big theological terms. So pay attention 
this is your ticket to social stardom tonight during the game. When the halftime show is boring, and you're like, oh, whoever it is is singing, whatever they're doing, you go, oh, you know, well, you know, this is this is this is horrible. Uh, expiation. <clears throat> and you go, what? Oh, expiation. Let's talk about that. You can just steer the conversation. So, expiation is this. On the Day of Atonement, you will remember there were two goats. There, the one was a scapegoat. The sins of the people were symbolically confessed over its head, and then it was led away. That was removal. The fancy word we use for that is expiation, because obviously removal was too complicated. So we say expiation. You're, you're, that sin is expiated. It's removed from you. It's taken away from you. It's gone. God, God has provided a way for, for your sin to be, to be transferred to a substitute. And then it's just, it, it's gone. It's, it's out of sight. It's out there. It's been removed. Your sin is expiated. That only works because there's another offering that's completely destroyed. It's consumed by fire. And that, that offering is the propitiation. It satisfies the wrath of God. God is made favorable to us. He can treat us with favor because his wrath has been satisfied because of the substitute. Expiation and propitiation, it's not all of atonement, but if you get both of those together, you've got a pretty good picture of it. My sin removed, God's wrath satisfied through the death of a substitute on my behalf. And because of that, Isaiah, oh yes, Woe to you! Woe to everyone who's not touched by the redeeming power of the coal of atonement, symbolizing Jesus. But if, if you've been touched by the atonement of Jesus, all of your guilt, it's expiated, it's gone, it's removed. All of God's wrath, satisfied. You bear no more legal guilt. There is no penalty for you. There is now no condemnation Actual or even conceivable. Because of what Jesus Christ has done. Expiation and propitiation. And it's all a gift of pure grace. Who provides for atonement? It's not Isaiah. It's not even the seraphim. It's God himself. So what's the response to atonement then? The voice of the Lord says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Now, I think actually, I mean, you can make this case grammatically. We'll dispense with that. I'll just assert it. Isaiah is excited. This is great. He's like, Abraham, here I am. I'm ready. I stand ready to serve you. You've just seen this incredible vision of God, uh, the great king, the awesome, exalted one, ruling over all things. You've just seen this incredible vision of the seraphim praising God. You've just had your sin atoned for in, in, in a brilliant, symbolic way. And now God says, I need a messenger. And Isaiah can't contain himself. Here I am. Send me. I, I can't believe it's even possible that someone like you might give someone like me a job to do whatever it is i don't care what is it he volunteers before he knows his assignment which just so you know is exactly what you should do in church when we need help 
we'll we'll ask for volunteers. We'll tell you what you're doing later. Uh, but that's that's what he does. All ghosts, send me, send me. And God says, okay, Isaiah, you go, you go. You tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Because Isaiah, what, what you've seen, they're going to be blind to. You're going to tell people, here's, here's the vision of a holy God. And they won't see it. You're going to say, don't, don't you see? Don't you see? The whole earth is filled with his glory. They'll say, no, no, it's not. And, and they'll cover their ears and they'll close their eyes because, because Isaiah, they love darkness. And when they're exposed to light, they don't find it attractive. In fact, for a lot of these people, when they're exposed to light, it, it'll hurt their eyes and they'll squint and they'll screw their eyes shut harder and harder. And, and they'll, they'll rage against the light, Isaiah. But you go and you speak. And Isaiah says, okay. Okay, that was the fine print. There must be something else. I'll, I'll do that, Lord. I, I will. I can. But for how long? For how long, Lord? This can't be my life. You can't. You can't call me to that. You you can't, God. You can't give give me this vision, and and then give me the task of representing it. And call me to this forever. This can't be life. For a time, yes, but not life. Please, God. For how long, Lord? Because Isaiah probably... Genuinely loved these people. It's just a nameless, faceless crowd to us. Just an ancient people that we don't really think about, besides just sort of a, a lump, ambiguous, amorphous mass in our head when we think about a big crowd. But this, these are his people. These are his neighbors. This is his family, his friends. And he loved them. For how long, God? And he answered... Until the cities lie ruined. I'm going to tear it all down. And without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Isaiah, I'm going to tear it all down. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Isaiah, I'm bringing together the culmination of the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28. It's exile. They're not going to see. They're not going to turn. They will not be healed. 
and you are going to keep speaking. And though a tenth remains in the land, that is, 90% of the population is ruined and exiled, and there's 10% left, and you go, okay, God, just give me 10%. Just give me something to hold on to. And though a tenth remains in the land, Isaiah goes, a tenth, yes, it will again be laid waste. But as Isaiah just, just when you have this, this, this glimmer of hope, that maybe, just maybe, there'll be something positive to hold on to, even if it's only 10% of your time. There's only gonna be a tenth that I'm gonna lay it to waste again. But, in the same way that you take a great oak tree and you chop it all down and there's just one little, little stump there. Isaiah, that's all that's left. But that stumps the remnant. It's the holy seed of the people in the land. That holy seed, that little stump, all that's left from the ruin and destruction, that holy seed connects you to the song of the seraphim, Holy, holy, holy. It's not big, Isaiah, but there is a holy group left, God says. And Isaiah, through this little tiny group, I'm going to continue to work out all of my plans for the world. From this little tiny group, eventually there will be a shoot, which will be the Messiah. Eventually, the fulfillment of atonement is going to come from this little group. Isaiah, yes, yes, your life. In a ministerial sense, Isaiah, your life will be a painful failure and then you will die. But my purposes will go forward. I have a plan. I have a future. You will not live to see the fulfillment of it in this world, but it's coming, Isaiah. I promise you I'm not giving up yet. I'm still in sovereign control. Do you doubt me? You just saw me on my throne, high and lifted up and exalted. I will have my way. My glory will cover the earth. And I will chastise my people. I will discipline my people. I will punish my people, but my purposes to bless the world through Abraham's seed will be accomplished. And God uses us in different ways. And some are called to to delightful, joyful, happy lives, and some aren't. But the reality is God uses all of his people the way he wants for the purposes that he has And it culminates in the glory of the new heavens and new earth. And that's why there really is a light at the end of the tunnel. Because no matter what this life is like, and there's some good things, there's some really good things in this life too. The new heavens and new earth is ours. That's our home. That's where we're going. And there we will live in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. We'll see the fulfillment of all of God's good purposes. We'll live in his love and bask in his glory 
and we'll see it. And we'll know it. And we'll experience it. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Removing our sin by bearing it himself. Dying in our place. Satisfying the wrath of God. We're going to think about that. The holiness of God, our sin, and the provision of salvation through Jesus uh, as we celebrate communion together.